All right, now we, uh, <clears throat> we're in the middle of uh, kind of breaking your Bible down into sections. And probably by now you can see the value of that and how that it, uh, it really helps us in an overall understanding picture concept of, of the Bible. And I, uh, you know, when the Bible talks about rightly dividing uh, the word of truth, this is one of the fundamental major divisions. Uh, you will see that as we go through the Bible, these divisions keep popping up. Um, almost everything in the Bible that's a major issue is something that has to be divided out. And, you know, the Bible itself is set up that way. It's divided between an Old Testament and a New Testament. And that's just where it begins, and then it works through that dividing up uh, <clears throat> almost at every aspect. <clears throat> Tomorrow, uh, you know, as we come through here, obviously, just in the natural course of other things we do, certainly Thursday night Bible study, and uh, from time to time on Sunday morning, uh, I'll always uh, forewarn you or tell you that um, there's going to be a, a, a real key of the Bible laid out tomorrow. Um, we will go through it again probably at some point down the line, but you, you might as well get it now. So tomorrow, uh, bring your notebooks because when we get into these last verses in Proverbs 21, yeah, it's going to divide itself out. You're going to see it being laid out and you get another major piece of the Bible to put into the other pieces you have. So I'm just telling you that tomorrow. You want to uh, make sure that you come prepared to get that. Of course, tomorrow, like I said, if you don't, you can get the tape and go through it, but what, whatever you want to do. Now, we started in here, and I showed you the first section was in Genesis chapter 1-1 and verse 1-1-2, and, you know, that dealt with the, uh, the fall of Satan. And we broke the Bible down into 17 major components. Learn and study each one of them, and then bolt them back together. The second one was the refurbishing of God's heavens after the fall of Satan, and we talked about that, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Third section was the major section of Adam and Eve, where man first shows up. Fourth section took us into Noah's flood, <clears throat> and then the fifth section, we started with Abraham, and we started to see the formulation of the nation of Israel, and we watched, looked through all of that. Then we saw the sixth section is when God takes them down into Egypt. All these are absolutely key places in your Bible that set the Bible in another level of direction. The Bible is a book that's going to reveal to you God's mind and God's plan. That plan is escalating through the Bible. Every one of these breakdowns that I'm giving you in the Bible is that next escalation or next... <laughs> set of stairs you're going to go up, or a ladder you're going to climb, or a tree you're going to fall out of, I don't care. <clears throat> the seventh one was a major place in your Bible, the calling out of the nation of Israel in Exodus. Uh, then we saw <clears throat> another key aspect was the establishment of Israel. Then we saw the ninth one was the demise of Israel, and then the tenth one was the captivity of Israel. That lays out the five aspects that's really the Old Testament is built around. And you should have all this now. You should, you should be able to sit up here and teach this, you know, to everybody. You should have that laid out. Um, you, have the, you have the formulation. You have the, 
the, uh, uh, you know, you have the formulation, you, then you have the uh, uh, calling out, you have the establishment, you have the demise, and then you, you have the captivity. So, and then that brought us up to last week, which was, uh, again, probably the central focal point in history, other than the creation. And that was the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw last week how absolutely impacting that was to the world. Nothing has ever been the same since his coming here. And we fully, completely understand that now um, and see the importance of it. So as I said, by now, <coughs> you, uh, you ought to be able to uh, see the value of how we're doing this. If you stay with this and you do what I'm telling you to do, I promise you, it's a guarantee you'll come out on the other side knowing your Bible. You just will. And that should be the goal of why you're here anyhow. Now today we're going to enter into the 12th section, and that will be the, uh, the church age. And this is the period of time that, that, that we live in. And the church age runs from... Uh, Commonly, as you lay it out, it runs from, from uh, you know, uh, the New Testament times with Christ, uh, the Paul revealing to Paul the book of Acts. It starts in Acts and then runs up to the rapture of the church. Now, the timeline in the Bible for that is 2,000 years. We know that uh, if that was true, based on, you know, uh, Christ's birth, then we know that um, that the rapture should have taken place somewhere around 1994, seven years tribulation, year 2000 ought to be the millennium. Well, obviously that didn't happen. We are 17 years past that. That seems like a long time, but it really it's not. It's just a millisecond to God. Daniel chapter 2 tells us very clearly that God can, at his own will and discretion, change the times. And I asked Dr. Ruckman one time uh, when it all didn't fall together, and I suspected what he was going to stay, tell me. And he basically said it's, it's one of two reasons. One, either our calendar is not the same calendar that God is going by, which, which may be true, or God has, for his own purpose and reason, within his own discretion, has changed the times uh, and added to it or taken it. Or, and there may be a third possibility is that uh, not everything that you read in a Bible at face value is always at face value. Uh, there may be, there's places in the Bible that are unknown overlaps of time that nobody's ever really figured out. We can try to assign them here or there, but the truth of the matter is they're unknown uh, time lapse, overlap of time. You may have that problem too. Bottom line is this, you know, the church age from a practical standpoint, the way we talk about it here, we talk about it being 2,000 years. It may be longer than that. certainly won't be any shorter than that, but depending on, on, on where you're at with it. Now, we live in the church age. This presents some problems for people who really don't get into the Bible much, which is just about everybody today. We have a tendency as human beings that um, where we're at in life or what we're doing in life predominates everything we do, and we view everything we do through that. That's just, that's just human nature. We, we all do that. The thing that happens with Christians is they, they live in the church age. They're surrounded by New Testament Christianity. 
So because they live in the church age and everything we deal with and know about is predominantly the church age, we have a tendency to look at everything in the Bible through the kaleidoscope of New Testament Christianity. And that is a fundamental flaw that needs to be corrected if you're ever going to really understand the Bible. You know, this is the fundamental reason why people in the Christians today look at the people in the Old Testament and they, they make the statement we've talked about many times that the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross and we look back to the cross. They, From their position in the church age, we do look back to the cross, so they just assume that everybody in the Old Testament look forward. This is why that people think that people in the Old Testament will be saved just like you and I are saved. And um, uh, because the, the church age that we're in, uh, it, it dominates everything that we do. That when the tribulation comes, but we're going to look at here, I don't know if we'll get into it today or not, but we'll, we'll definitely get into it here. It's the next section. Um, when, the, when the tribulation begins to start, um, the, the mindset today is the fact that the people in the tribulation uh, get saved just like you and I do. And this is why you have so many of the movies that come out that somebody has left, somebody, you know, that tells a story that a husband or whatever, he, he rejects Christ here, you know, and all this stuff in, in the church age, and his family is all saved, and he won't go to church and all those things, and the rapture takes place, and then he gets left behind. And then it, it, the story unfolds as he goes through that you know, and finds Christ and, you know, gets saved and lives happily ever after, you know. That's just not the way it works. But that mindset, it's important not only to know the heresy that's out there, it's important to know why it's out there. It's important to know why somebody believes what they believe. Last Sunday I talked to you about, you know, dealing with people, getting, scaling the wall, you know, getting inside of people's worlds. And by the way, while I'm, while I'm thinking of this, um, I preached that message on, uh, on Sunday, and, you know, I talked about how the people ministry and what we do and all that stuff. You know, God gave us a textbook example of that uh, on, on Monday night. Most of you don't know about, but I'm going to bring up the speed on it. We had a couple that came into our church a couple of months ago that, uh, you know, they were going to a, a, a Baptist church, a pretty much messed up dead Baptist church. And, uh, you know, they were having some issues. And uh, through uh, one of our uh, men in the church, who's a lawyer who had worked with them, you know, and helped the man through some issues, you know, um, he, they saw the change in his life. And, uh, you know, he, again, was used of God to bring them to me. So I met with them. I put some guys with the guys, with the, with the guy, and I put some of you gals with, with, the, uh, with the lady. Now, when I met with them, um, they both emphatically told me that they were both saved. Uh, I looked at the church that they came from and all that was going on there that they were telling me about, and I highly doubted that that was the case. So I, but I didn't say anything. I just, I let it go. I have learned, I have learned. You need to learn this too. <laughs> I have learned that when you get a suspect situation like that, it's not always best to try to deal with it right then because they're in a defensive position. They don't 
un yet understand the difference between our church and where they're at. All they really know is their church. So what are they going to do? They're going to defend their church even though they don't like it. So you just let it go. You let it slide. You don't even, you don't make a big deal about it. I have learned through experience that if they want to get discipled and they want to get going in their world, then if they're not saved, that's where it will come out. So what I did was, never questioned it, I put him with the guys that are working with him and I put her with the ladies that are working with, with her. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where um, you started discipling her and, and she told me, she told me, you know, that she was going to keep going to her church she was going to come on Thursday night and be disciple, but she was going to keep going to her church because that where her right now is where her comfort zone was because she knew everybody there, which there again, most pastors would have would tried to talk her out of it. I have learned, let God do it. Just let it go. It's okay. Yeah, I know if that if I get her in discipleship and I get my key ladies, they get their claws in her, she's cooked. It's it's over. It's done. She's going to get whatever it needs to happen has happened. Well, you began to work with her and you began to, you know, deal with her on, uh, um, on the issues of, of just discipling her. And uh, through the process of that, she began to question her own salvation. And I guess that night was Mass Monday night and I had to come over because I had to meet with uh, another uh, gal. And, and I was here when that happened for a little while. And um, you guys, I guess, began to give your just as your testimonies of how you got saved and what God did in your life. And I, I guess she said, well, that never happened to me. Bottom line is this. She got saved that night. And that's exactly the textbook what I'm talking about. You guys won her to Christ simply because you were patient enough and you scaled the wall. She had a wall built up that she thought she was saved. She had a wall built up that she thought, you know, she had went to a Baptist church and all those things. I didn't think she did, but I wasn't going to say anything. I let the Holy Spirit of God do it through you guys. You guys did exactly what you need to do. You began to work with her, take her in, become her friend. She loved the church. She loved the teaching. She said, you know, that it was the first time she was here, she learned more Bible than she did wherever she was all of her life. And those are all good things. But it took you ladies doing exactly what I preached last Sunday, getting into her world, scaling that wall. And that's how she, she came, to, came to Christ, you see. And uh, that's exactly the textbook of what, you know, that we, we do. I don't give a lot of invitations on Sunday morning for people to get saved. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I do it when I feel like the Lord really leads me to do it. But I think that in most churches, that becomes a, a standard traditional thing that you do. And, you know, I don't ever want to get locked into something like that. I have learned for a person to get saved, honest to goodness, the best way for that to happen is the way it happened Monday night. You folks getting involved in somebody's life, earning the right, scaling the walls, getting into the city, and then them allowing you to win them to Christ. You have, that, that is the textbook way to do it. Baptist churches have got into the mindset because of the fact that they, they, it's, they've always done it that way. It's like Wednesday night service. There are churches in this city, Baptist churches, 
who would look at us for not having a Wednesday night church service as being an apostasy. Forget the fact that we got a knockdown, drag out Bible study on Thursday night. There's something magically about Wednesday. Maybe it's because that's the day the Lord was crucified on. I have no idea. They, there's churches that believe that if you don't have a Sunday night church, I've had people call me on the phone and ask me about our church. And, you know, when they ask me what time Sunday evening services, and I tell them we don't have it, they're, they're done with us. They, they don't even understand that two Sundays out of the month, we're out all day long ministering to people uh, and taking what we learn here. But they're traditionalized, you see. It's like Wednesday night and Sunday night are in the Bible. And therefore, you, you, uh, you have to do that. And of course, that's the mindset of the church today. The mindset of the church today is the fact that they, they, they have tunnel vision. They look at everything through the eyes of, of, of the church age. And, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. But it's a natural thing for us because it's the prominent thing that we live in. I suspect probably in the Old Testament, that was their biggest deal there, after the law or before the law. I'm sure that that was a trait of human nature that had to be overcome in everything that, whatever dispensation you're in. But when I, when I tell you all the time that when you, when you study the Bible, when you look at what God is doing, you never study the Bible from a Christian standpoint. And I say that all the time, and a lot of people don't understand that. But the reason why I say that is because Christianity is only 2,000 years of a 7,000-year concept that God is doing what he's doing. So you never study the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You never read the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You want to develop the mindset that when you come to the Bible, you always study the Bible from God's standpoint. Don't localize yourself on what God is doing in one small section of the Bible because you're going <clears> to <throat> bleed over into all the other sections. Step back, look at it, Look at the Bible as a whole. Now, this is why I'm taking the Bible, breaking it down into 17 components for you. This is why I'm giving you the Bible in 17 increments that show you what God is doing. This is why I take the extensive time to explain about the church age. So from this point on, you know, you can, you can begin to look at it. And whenever you're reading the Bible, you don't view it you don't view it from the church aid that you're in. Now, you may make the application to yourself. Or you may see types of the church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we have a tendency that whenever we read in the Bible, we read church aid into it and think that everything in the Bible has to be done the way it is done in the church age. And of course, that's a drastic mistake. That really, carrying that a little bit farther, that's really the fundamental demise and the disaster in, in modern-day missions today. Uh, modern-day American missionaries who go around the world, they think that American Christianity is superior to the culture of where they're going to. So what they do is they go into these foreign cultures and they try to get these people to step out of their own culture and embrace American culture. They'll take American songbooks. They'll take American everything and try to infuse it into them. Uh, during the Vietnam War, there was a saying that certainly wasn't true, and it led to our failure in Vietnam. Uh, we, we, we as Americans, uh, as a nation, like to go around building a democracy in every other nation that's not a democracy. And the military came up with the, the high brass came up with the term that um, in every Vietnamese, there was an American trying to break out. 
And that's just totally ludicrous. And uh, that's why we failed. Uh, you know that they even, in early Vietnam, they even built over there a couple of cities that was patterned after American cities and tried to move people in to westernize them, and it failed miserably. And of course, it's a, it's a thing where that's been the failure of missions. And that's the failure when it comes to the Bible. So when we come to the church age, we need to understand it as a component within the Bible that is just as separate as the rest of the components in the Bible. And you need to see it as it fits into the overall Bible, not as just we live in the church age, so we view everything with God in the Bible through the church age. Because that's going to really mess you up, and that's what leads to, to, you know, to, to a lot of heresy. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 16. Pick it up and down in verse uh, 25 and 26. Now, as we get a little farther into this, uh, we're going to go through the seven series. And you're going to find out that uh, within the Bible there are seven mysteries. And we will, we will lay those out, and then we'll go through the rest of the sevens and show you how they interlock together. But we've got to learn our, our Bible framework first. And, and Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, it says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Now that verse says that the, the church age, and Paul is making the reference here to his gospel, that's the gospel of grace and God that was given to him. Paul is the apostle to the church. He says here that the revelation of the church was a mystery which was kept secret since the world began. The church age was always in God's mind, but God never revealed it to anybody till he revealed it to Paul. You're going to find places in the Bible where people are going to tell you that this is a direct reference to the church. That will not be true. In the Old Testament, there are no direct references to the church age in any way, shape, or form. Now, are there, are there men and women and circumstances that show you a type of the church? Absolutely. But you've got to remember, you only know it's a type because you now have the church age revealed to you. So you have the comparison. If the church age would have never happened, you never would have seen that in there. So, yes, there's typology in the Bible, but there's no direct references to the church uh, anywhere. Uh, and usually the ones that they try to make it are either to the Jew in the tribulation or the millennium or somewhere else. And that doesn't mean you can't make inspirational applications across the board. You can. But you'll never find a direct reference in the church that states that the church age is going to come into being. That was a mystery, and it's one of the seven mysteries found in the Bible that was revealed to Paul. So, you know, when you, when you understand that, you realize that Paul was the first one who got the revelation of the church. And God gave it to him, and that revelation was concerning the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Uh, Paul calls that my gospel because it was given to him. Paul makes it very clear that what he got, he didn't get from anybody else. He got it straight from God. 
And, uh, you know, he is the first one that God reveals that to. So you want to remember, first of all, that the church age was a mystery. Now, let me tell you why it's a mystery. And I'm going to try to keep this light. We'll, we'll, we'll develop it as we go through the next several years in Bible Institute, and you'll have it all together by the time we're done. The church age, the church age was an option for God. Now that, this is, what I'm about to give you is totally foreign, totally foreign. And, uh, you know, it's totally outside the realm of theology today in higher education. It's totally outside the teaching of most Baptist churches with most Baptist preachers. They, 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 we're, we're where, they, we're, right now, you're where they could never even hope to be when it comes to understanding the Bible. And that's just, that's just the way it is. I'm sorry. But the church age was an option. And that's why God never revealed it. If he would have revealed it in the Old Testament, then he would have had to bring it about. The more I've learned about God, the more I understand how God operates, the more I realize that God doesn't always, he, he, he plays his cards very close to his chest sometimes. He didn't show his hand. God is a God of options. God, for your own life, when you get saved, God has the complete, your life completely laid out what he wants you to do. And all you got to do is get in the Word of God and get the Holy Spirit of God in your life, and that, that plan will unfold itself, and you'll wind up with the judgment seat of Christ with everything God wanted you to be. But then there's an option, and the option is, will you do that or will you not do that? So if you don't do that and you go down the wrong road, then God has options for that. And the fact that God has something for you that he wants you to fulfill in your life doesn't take away the fact that you have the option through the free will to throw that away. And God then will deal with you on that basis, putting all the things that he had for you on the side and then give you whatever you want the way you want it and wind up at the judgment seat of Christ losing everything. So God always has options that he plays. He's not someone who forces us to do anything. He has, obviously, the best layout and plan for your life that could be in his mind. Just as every parent, and we do this in a human sense, every parent, when they have a child, in your mind, you begin to formulate that perfect lifestyle for that child. Now, that child probably, in most cases, won't do that. But you, as a parent, think that way. You want the best for them. Most parents want better for their kids than they had for themselves. <clears throat> Most parents want their kids to marry uh, somebody that is going to be the right mate, male or female. They want all of that stuff. Well, if you and I do that, <clears throat> when you get born into God's family through a new birth, I guarantee you God has the same structure in his mind and a plan for you. It's no accident that you were born when you were born. It's no accident that you were, you were in Kansas City. You could have been anywhere in the world. It's no accident that God brought you here. The greatest thing, if we believe that this is God's church and we have the Word of God and we're here to do what God wants us to do, then the next step, if we believe that, is the fact that God saw something special in you because He could have put you any place in the city. He could have given you a, a, a real messed up church with a real... And some of you were there for a while. But how did you get here? Why did you get here? You see... Some of you got here 
through not too pleasant circumstances. Others, you were just bebopping along in life and you bumped into the front door. But the bottom line is we have a tendency to look at the things that went in our life that were bad and forget that the fact that if it wasn't for those things, you wouldn't be here. So God sometimes will use those things to get you where he wants you to be because he sees something special in you. Now, after 50 years in the ministry, almost 50 years, I can safely say this. There's something special about every one of you as God sees you. The problem is not God seeing in you what is special. The problem is you not seeing what is special about God in you. That's the problem. So God has a plan laid out for you that he wants you to follow in life. Everything is in place. He, in his mind, he's got it all laid out. There'll be options of variance, sure. But in his mind, he has all that covered. This is why the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. When you get the word of God in your life and it's God's mind and you see it, then you see what God has for you as he has it for you. Problem with God's people, you're on your own mindset. You're going to do it your way. And of course, that's the avenue you go down. God allows you to have that option. So in the Bible, when it comes to the church age, it was optional. It was optional. When, when Christ shows up the first time, <clears throat> I know, I get it. <clears throat> Everybody thinks that he came in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be the Savior of the world and die for you and me on the cross. I, I get it. I preach that. If, if you preached all the Bible the way it really is, everybody would be totally confused. So you've got to have some latitude when it comes to the Bible. Don't take this the wrong way. There's some things that are not absolutely 100% correct in the teaching of understanding, but because of people's association with the generalization of it, you have to follow it. I'll give you an example. How many times have you heard me say, we've all heard it, that when you go to die and you go to heaven to spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ up in heaven. But you know, technically, fundamentally, that's not true. You go to New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. But could you imagine trying to win somebody to Christ and stopping and explaining all of that to them? (laughs) So my point is, there has to be a grain of sand with things in the Bible sometimes. Because, you know, it's a thing where it's written in such a way that a person has has to be able to grasp it. So we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see those things in there, and we actually think that Christ was coming in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first and foremost, to die on the cross for you and for me. That's not true. Now, it became true, but that was not the first motive by which God had in mind. He's coming to them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, revealing himself to the nation of Israel as the king of the Jews, as a servant to the Jews, as the man going to the Jews, and as the son of God going to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of the king. They could find out that he's the king, according to Israel. Matthew chapter 2, you have the birth of the king. They go back into Daniel when they could see all the prophecies that were there. Everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fundamentally and foremost is to the nation of Israel. Jesus is not my Messiah. He is my Savior. He's Israel's Messiah. He's not my Messiah. That's another messed up today. 
The greatest trick the devil ever did, and you've heard me say this a million times, the greatest trick the devil ever did was take the Bible away from people. Because once he did that, you lose everything. You cannot find yourself. You cannot define anything. You don't know where you're at. So you come up with all these religious, spiritual terms that have nothing to do fundamentally with the Bible. And then we infuse them into our Christian life and we get confused. <clears throat> in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, <clears throat> he comes to Israel as a nation. John chapter 3 is a good example. John chapter 3, the Bible says, has the story of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He lays the whole thing out. Jesus looks at him and he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see this, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus gets confused and asks, goes a little dissertation about going back into the mother's womb and Jesus explains it to him. <clears throat> we use that as an example of a man getting born again. But fundamentally, did you notice that he never says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need to be born again? Because Nicodemus could not have been born again. Holy Spirit of God had not yet come. There was absolutely no basis yet in the Bible or history for Nicodemus to get born again. He, he could not get born again. So he didn't say, Nicodemus, except a man be born again. He told Nick, uh, except you be born again. He says, Nicodemus, except a man be born again. That man, as I've talked to you many, many times, is the nation of Israel. You and I get born again, Romans chapter 8, as an individual. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, uh, the nation of Israel gets born again as a nation at the second coming of Christ. You get born again as an individual. They get born again as a nation. See how close those are? but they're not the same. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you begin to realize that all of that in there, all of that in there, though you can make some spiritual applications to it, all of it in there directly is the first coming of Christ is to the nation of Israel. He was not coming to the world to die on the cross. He was coming to them to be their king. If you study the Gospels, you will find by the time you get to the week before his crucifixion on Palm Sunday, you'll find there that the whole week from Palm Sunday to his crucifixion is laid out. In Matthew chapter, I laid out the book of Matthew for you over and over again. And you'll find in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13 that that's where the Jews make their rejection of his Messiahship. And it sends the kingdom then into a parable. And, uh, you know, the Jews, and you've heard me say this before, the Jews have three chances to get Christ as their Messiah and get the kingdom of heaven that is to them. The first one was John the Baptist, and they killed him. The second one was Jesus Christ himself. And in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, that is the official rejection of him, and it goes downhill from there, and of course they crucify him. The third one was in the early part of the book of Acts. So I want you to take your Bible now and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. And I want you to see how this church age is something very special. That it was something that God did not reveal till Paul showed up. Now most people when it comes to the Bible, they, they, they never learn how to read the Bible. And they never know, as I've said, they don't know what to look for and they don't know what to do when they got it. We're trying to change that here. But in Acts chapter 1, Christ is 
Christ has died. He has now resurrected. And he's made himself, he made himself clear to all the apostles. And uh, when it comes to, uh, they all get together here. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Now, this is after his death, burial, and resurrection. This is where most people will say that, okay, uh, because we're in technically the New Testament, we're in the church, and all this is the church. I, I, I think they really think that, you know, it was, it was the Old Testament on, uh, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and when he comes out of the tomb on Friday night or Saturday night, Saturday morning, the Sabbath, uh, 6 o'clock at night, suddenly it was a, it was a church age. Uh, people actually believe it. Or maybe they don't even know what they believe. They just, they just follow what they've been taught because they don't know for themselves. That's not how it happened. Remember, everything God does, he does through a transition. Everything. God never stops something on Monday and starts it on Tuesday. It always follows a transition. I'm going to show you that here in just a little bit if we get through it that far today. Okay, well, he says, verse 6, And when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the again, the kingdom to Israel. Nobody's asking about the church. God has not revealed it yet. We think because we're past the resurrection, and as I said, in Hebrew says that the New Testament comes into effect at the death of the testator, that now we're in the church age. You may be in the church age here, but nobody knows it because he hasn't revealed it yet. The Lord will not restore this time, again, the kingdom to Israel. There isn't one mention of here of these 12 Jewish apostles are looking for the kingdom of heaven. Now look what he says. Then he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the season which the Father hath put in his own power. He basically doesn't answer them. And he says, this is on a need-to-know basis, and right now you don't need to know. And he says, it's not for you to know. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the, or the earth. Now, again, bear with me here. We take that as our mandate for missions. And, and, and it's fine. If you want to spiritualize that, that's good. But in the context, he's talking about them and what they're going to do in the millennium. That's a millennial verse. That's the millennial verse. Now, it may be true inspirationally. We may fulfill that in the kingdom of God, but as he's speaking to them there, he's not talking. There isn't a Gentile within 150 billion light years that's born again. And when he had spoken these things, and while they beheld him, he was taken up in a cloud and received him out of their sight. And while they stood fast toward heaven, he went up, and behold, two men stood in white apparel. Now, these two men probably, most probably, are Moses and Elijah. doesn't say that, but you could put money on it and probably win the lottery. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up in heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up for you into heaven, shall come also in like manner have seen him go up into heaven. So the context here is the nation of Israel and the second coming of Christ. There isn't one thing about the church here. This is dealing with the kingdom. Now, what happens here is they ask the question about the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't answer them. Then what happens in Acts chapter 
two, three, or Reston one, two, three, four, five, and six, and seven, is a man by the name of Peter, who we know in Matthew chapter 16 and 17 was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's to Israel. So he shows up and he preaches a number of messages. In Acts chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 14, uh, verse uh, 13, he preaches his first message. In Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 14, he'll preach his second message. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, he'll preach his third message. You want to get these in your Bible. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 19, he preaches his fourth message. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he preaches his fifth message. And then in Acts chapter 7, Paul gets taken out of the preaching circuit, and one of the deacons by the name of Stephen gets put in. And uh, Stephen's messages falls right along with Paul's messages. And every one of Paul's messages are to the nation of Israel and the leaders of Israel fundamentally boiling it down that this same Jesus which you have crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. In those five messages, he gives them everything they need to do to get the kingdom. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen steps into the pulpit and he preaches his famous sermon. And again, it's aimed, it starts out in a natural, uh, in a national sense of God's presence in Israel in the Old Testament, runs him up through the prophets and winds up with them crucifying him. And uh, look at Acts chapter 7, verse uh, 53. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it? That's Israel. Remember I gave you that verse when somebody asked a question in John 5 here Thursday night. When they heard these things, they were cut to their heart for they, and gnashed upon him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. Now, whenever you find the phrase, the heavens open, you want to look at it very carefully. The next prominent time that the heavens open is in Revelation chapter 19, uh, 19.11. And that's the second coming of Christ. Notice that Christ is standing on the right hand of God. Now, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that, that, uh, In places like Psalm 110, Acts 2.34, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 12.1, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Here the Bible says he's standing. And the reason why he's standing, because if the Jews would have accepted 
the preaching of Peter and then Stephen and would have followed through with what they did, then the second coming of Christ would have taken place right here. And that's why he's standing to come back. Now, I say that, and I'll tell you this. The standard interpretation today of every Baptist preacher in this city is the fact that because they don't know what to do with it, because they're so absolutely ludicrously stupid when it comes to the Bible, they look at this portion and they think that he's standing up to welcome this martyr home. How many times have I heard that preached? That the Lord is, Christ is standing up to welcome that martyr home. Well, the problem with that, and I hate to keep going back to the Bible. I wish we could just lose ourselves in nice, fun, fluffy stuff, but I'm just not in my character. According to the Bible, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is no respecter of persons. That means if he stood up for one, he'd have to stand up for everybody. That means that he would have had at least four or five back surgeries by now. Standing up and sitting down, standing up and sitting down. I mean, 86 souls a second go into eternity. It's just say that half of them were saved. That's a lot of getting up. It just cancels out the whole concept that he's standing up to welcome this martyr home. The key here is the phrase, and he saw heaven opened. This would have been the second coming of Christ. This is why, this is why Jesus. This is why Jesus did not answer them. Now, this is absolutely important to see this, because, and we'll come through the Book of Acts in great detail when we come through the three problem textbooks in the Bible: Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. But for right now, understanding the Church Age, I want you to see that they that he's standing here. Because if the nation of Israel would have accepted Stephen's message, if they would have accepted Peter's preaching, then they would have, Christ would have brought in the kingdom right here. The second coming of Christ would have taken place, and you would not have had a church age. I say that. It looks like you wouldn't have had a church age. Now, I don't have all the answers to that, and I know that every time I say that, thousand people raise their hand, well, what if this, what if that, how do you deal with this? My answer to that is, I don't have a clue because it didn't happen. I put it in the same category in a context of what would have happened if Adam and Eve didn't eat the forbidden fruit. None of it would have happened. There would have been no nation of Israel. God's original plan would have been fulfilled and been unfulfilled, and we would have been born somewhere out in eternity on God knows what planet going in to get the tree of life at 33 years old and living happily fat every after and having a great time. But it didn't happen. I can't speak to everything in the Bible that would have happened if the fact that it didn't happen. But there's no question about that. Nothing in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 has anything to do with me and you. And the break, the switch from Acts chapter 7 to Acts chapter 8 is so loud that you have to really be deaf to not see it and hear it. <clears throat> because everything, if you, don't, if you have a red pencil, <clears throat> one of those China markers, don't do it with a, one of those bleed-through things. I would put a circle around chapter 8 in Acts. Because chapter 8 in Acts is absolutely a turning point in the book of Acts. The next, since we're here, 
the next place that I would put a red circle around it would be Acts chapter 20. Now, what I've done for you is broken your book of Acts. I've rightly divided it into three sections. Acts chapter 1 through 7 is the first section. Acts chapter 8 through chapter 19 is the second section. And Acts chapter 20 through chapter 28 is the third section. Now you have a complete breakdown of the book of Acts. I mean, you ought to be able to work through that. But I say all that to say this. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 8, things change. <clears throat> what happens in Acts chapter 8 is a revival breaks out in Samaria. We know the Samarians are half Jews and half Gentiles. We also know that in Matthew chapter 10, when they went out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, they were told not to go to the Samarians. They have no part of Israel, only to Israel. Now, a great revival breaks out in Samaria, and then lo and behold, in Acts chapter 8, in the last half of that chapter, the first full-blown Gentile gets saved, a black Ethiopian eunuch, completely outside the realm of what's going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Something's changed. Now, if that wasn't enough, in Acts chapter 9, the apostle to the Gentile gets saved, Paul. Things are changing. Along with that, you never hear about Peter doing anything ever again in the church history course. Now, him and Paul meet over there uh, and work out some issues a little bit on in the book of Acts. But as far as being predominant and doing anything, uh uh-uh. His ministry was to the nation of Israel. And in Acts chapter 7, when that got shut down, he's out of it. Now comes in Paul. Now comes in the Gentiles. Now, Paul, from Acts chapter 9... In Acts chapter 9, where he gets saved, is 35 A.D. Uh, By the time we get to Acts chapter 11 and 12, we're up around 43, 44 A.D., where Paul shows up again. In this intermittent period of time where you don't have, <clears throat> you don't have Paul doing anything, he's up from the book of Galatians, he's out in Arabia on Mount Sinai, and he's gone for at least probably nine or ten years while God is laying this all out to him. And then he shows back up in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 12 and 13 at Antioch, which by now is a full-blown New Testament Bible-believing church, which is the model for you and for me. Then he goes on three missionary trips, all to Gentiles. Now, do you see the stark contrast between Acts chapter 1 and 7 and then from where we go from Acts 8 on? I mean, it's so loud you couldn't miss it. It just screams there's something different here. And now the church age becomes revealed through Paul. And uh, the thing that I want you to see and understand is that Uh, The church age was an option. We understand it because God played that option. And he brought about and put the church and established it based on Israel's final rejection. Remember, they get three chances to get the kingdom. John the Baptist, Christ himself, and then, of course, uh, Acts chapter 1 through 7 with the preaching of Stephen and the martyrs and then Paul or Peter to bring it all about. In Acts chapter 7, he's standing up. That's the end of the Jews. From that point on, he moved to the Gentiles. So, now, let's talk about when the church started. This is a source of controversy 
with everybody. I mean, it just, and yet it's so simple. It's so simple. There's a couple of stages to the church, and I told you, God does everything through a transition. That transition can last up to 100 years. I mean, it really could. I believe that right now, probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen the rapture yet is because we are most definitely in a transition. And we are in a transition coming out of the times of the Gentiles going into God establishing the nation of Israel. Personally, I think that in God's mind, even though we're seeing the residue of it, based on what I get into scriptures, I think probably the times of the Gentiles in God's mind probably ended around 1914 or certainly by 1948, but probably with the Zionist movement around 1900. Because that's when God begins to change the whole world to bring his people back. We hear a lot today about goofy stuff. You know, some idiotic, charismatic, read Joel chapter 2 with blood on the moon, and then stupid Baptist preachers talk about the blood moon as a sign, and the blood moon, and how everything uh, down through history, prophetic events all took place when the blood moon was there. And, you know, They would be much better to get their sermons out of Mad Magazine than trying to fool around with stuff like that. First of all, Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 36 and 38, the blood moon, that's the tribulation context. It isn't the church age. And, and the tribulation, the moon actually turns to blood. A better rendition of it, if you wanted to preach it, it's not as exciting and you wouldn't get big crowds. I'd call it the dirt moon. Because when the moon first comes up in the evening, and uh, you're looking at it till it gets about that high, it looks red. And it looks redder sometimes than others. And, and then it looks really big, too. You ever notice how it looks huge when it first comes up, and then by the time it gets up in the sky, it shrunk. You know, went on a diet from here to there. Now it's just small, but boy, it's huge. You see that big old red moon coming up, you know? That's called light refraction. I mean, I hate to rain on your parade or do anything on your parade, but that's called light refraction. Light refraction is that when you look through the atmosphere from zero degrees to probably, what, 30 degrees, that's the dirtiest part of the atmosphere. You're looking through 200 miles of sludge. And in that, looking at that dirt, everything gets, the light gets refracted. It makes the moon look bigger, and then it makes it look red. It isn't red because there's blood on the moon. It's red because you're looking through 40 miles of dirt, smog, carbon monoxide, hairspray, <laughs> all the things that are destroying our world on planet Earth. So you're looking at it through that, that mess. When it gets up high, now you're only looking through, what, 15, 10 miles of dirt. And the dirt thins out as the higher it gets, so everything looks clear. When I took all those pictures of, of astronomy, the last thing you want to do is try to shoot a picture, anything. I used to wait till they get right overhead because that's the clearest part of the sky. That's when you're looking through the least amount of atmospheric dirt and distortion. Everything below that is just totally distorted. So that's what you have. 
idiotic guys who follow some charismatic bozo who know nothing about the Bible thinks that it's a, it's a blood moon, you know, at, Acts, at a Joel chapter 2. Sorry, it's the dirt moon out of light refraction chapter 1. It, it's just that simple. But that's just me. Then I got a hundred emails, and I still haven't figured out what was supposed to happen here last month. On, on the 23rd? Yeah. What, the end of the world. A what? The end of the world. The end of the world. So Man, guy, how did I miss that? I mean, A guy decided that he found out of the Bible that some random planet called, I don't remember what it was called, but he, Uberium or something, was going to collide with the earth and destroy everything. And so the end of the world was going to come. I think he's the guy that wrote the book, Is There Gas Around Uranus? That's planted up there. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. You know, the last sign, the last sign that was given, and there'll be no more sign, nothing in the sky, nothing in this, the last sign that was given was the nation of Israel becoming a nation. That's it. Because if you know your Bible, you know exactly where you're at in perspective to that. And, you know, and that's just, that's just the way it is. So you see here that, that all of this stuff comes into being because everybody dumped the Bible. So most of God's people fall for that stuff. They do. Uh, they do. They, they fall for that stuff. They fall right into the trap. They fall right into getting all that stuff and, and just thinking, you know, uh, this is really Bible now. And uh, very frankly, most preachers who don't know the Bible are always looking for something to be exciting with their people to illuminate them with the Bible. And when you don't know it yourself to get the exciting things out of it, you got to get it from some charismatic guy who doesn't know anything about the Bible. And then you repackage it to your people and your people go out saying, Wow, does he know his Bible? No, you don't. You don't. You don't. But the church age then is, a, is, is so crucial in understanding how this thing works. Because uh, in Acts chapter 20, this is where we start, if technologically, this is where we start church history. Now, here's the Here's the aspect of the church. The church was a transition. Here's where it goes. The church age is fully established and laid out by Acts chapter 20. That is the last point. But here's where it goes. Now remember, Romans 16 says, it was a mystery kept to the foundation of the world, beginning of time or whatever it was. The church is called out in Matthew chapter 10. When he calls out the 12 apostles, descendants of the nation of Israel, that is the calling out of the church, except nobody knew it. He didn't tell anybody. The church is a called out assembly. Where was it called out? It was called out in Matthew chapter 10, but it was also a calling out to the nation of Israel. But God's playing his options. If that 10 was called out, if Israel rejected, then that calling out would have switched over into the church age. See how it works? God always has multiple options he can afford. So the church was called out in Matthew chapter 10. Now I've told you many, many times that the New Testament doesn't go into the effect of the death of the testator. That would be Christ. So that is true. So the church gets called out in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, 
the church goes into effect at the resurrection of Christ. But nobody knows it. We know it because we can look back, but at the time, nobody knew it. God is playing his cards close to his chest. He's calling it out. He has now put the New Testament into effect, but he's not telling anybody anything till he sees what Israel is going to do because that's primarily what he's come for. Now, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. It was called out in, in Matthew chapter 10. It goes into effect at Matthew 28. Now it's empowered in Acts chapter 1 and 2, except nobody knows it. And then it gets revealed when Paul shows up, Acts chapter 9 and on from there. So that's, that's where the church starts. There's not one place where the church stops on, or the Old Testament stops on Monday, and the New Testament church stops on, starts on Tuesday. It's a transition. And you can see it's a transition that takes a period of time. What you have in the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 7, after it's done, the doors closed with the Jew, what you have in Acts chapter 8 on, up to Acts chapter 20, is Paul defining, defending, and laying out and revealing the body mystery to the Gentiles by the starting of New Testament local churches. That's what he's doing. That's why they have that little problem over there in Acts where he's got to go down and meet with the people in Jerusalem because they're not understanding it. And he defends the gospel. And they come away saying, he's right, he's got it. We'll stay down here and work with our people. Peter says, because he's the apostle of the Jews, you go to do what God's called you to do. And they give him the right hand of fellowship and off he goes. But that's all what happened. By the time you get to Acts chapter 20, by the time you get to Acts chapter 20, Paul was in Ephesus. And uh, Acts chapter 20, to me, has always been one of the premier chapters in the Bible, and you should have that circled in red, as I told you. Because in Acts chapter 20, it's the last church that he goes to, or the last church that is mentioned that he goes to, before he goes down to Jerusalem. And we know that when he goes down to Jerusalem, he disobeys God, he gets thrown in prison, and he never does anything again uh, as far as starting churches is concerned. And, uh, but in Acts chapter 20, he's at Ephesus. And it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, he talks to them, and basically, uh, I think, uh, it's, it, it, it's one of the great sermon outlines on what a church should be. And uh, he tells them six things that they are to do. And this is the New Testament church. I'm going to show you here in a moment. This is the New Testament church that starts church history proper. If you want a place in your Bible where actually God starts ticking the time of church history, it's Acts chapter 20. Everything up to this point has been to get everything revealed, nailed down, called out, empowered, and now in Acts chapter 20, God's done with Paul. Everything now has been set in motion, and I'll show you in a minute. But I want to, I want to give you these six things that he gives to this church. I think it's one of the, and it was a very tough time. And uh, look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Now, uh, if you've got your red china marker there, and again, don't use a bleed-through pen, uh, put a little circle around verse 36. I'll tell you why in a minute. And when he had kneeled down 
uh, uh, when he had thus uh, spoken, and he kneeled down and prayed with all of them. Now, he's just given them these six things. <coughs> he's getting ready to leave. They're all heartbroken. They don't want to see him go. I'm sure many of them know that he's not headed for anything good because he's not. And they all wept sore, and they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the word which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accomplished him under the ship. That had to be one of the saddest times for this church. Paul was a reckoning force with all of the churches that he started. But this one is an incredible church. And you can see that, you can see that, uh, that uh, it's, it's a very tough time for them. Now, I wanted to draw your attention to verse 36. And uh, I, I draw your attention to that and tell you to circle it because this is another very important thing about your King James Bible. Verse 36 is the last paragraph mark in the Bible. There are no more paragraph marks after this. And there's a reason for that. There's no need to be. The paragraphs mark will break down for you dispensation. They'll break down, obviously, change of context. Paragraph marks do a lot of things. The only Bible in the history of the planet Earth that has paragraph marks in it will be a King James 1611 authorized version. Nothing else will have them in. The King James translators put the paragraph marks in because their English was a perfect premier English. The English of the new translations is, is gutter English. It's not perfect English. King James translators were so precise in the language that they used and the English language that they all knew that they put in paragraph marks to make, break it down for you uh, to show you when the subject changed, many times when a dispensation would change. Uh, it, was in, it was incredible the things that, in a way that they did when they put that in there. What happens here is for you and for me that paragraph marks indicate that God is showing us something. You find no paragraph marks after uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 36, because God has shown you everything. What you have that moving on from now is all New Testament church doctrine that is clearly given and has been defined for you and will be defined for you without any need for anybody showing you any different dispensations. It won't, you won't have to get the context this way now. The context will become very clear based on the books that you're about to get given to the church. So this is why that the last paragraph mark is found right here. There was no need for him anymore. Now, I told you that this is an important church in Ephesus because come over to Revelation chapter 1. Make it chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, look what it says in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now in the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, you have seven churches addressed. God did the same thing with church history 
that I did with the whole Bible. In other words, I just followed his pattern. He knew that church history was going to be very complicated. He also knew that the Bible was going to be very complicated. So he broke the Bible down into 17 major components, but when it came to church history, he broke church history down into 17 major components that you could follow it. He'd give each one a name, and then he gives you the characteristics of that church. He gives you insight into what they're going to do with the Word of God or what they don't do with the Word of God. And then he, he breaks it down from there that you can follow it. But the thing that I want you to see is that the first church that we start with in church history is the last church that Paul was with in Acts chapter 20, clearly showing us that church history proper, as we want to study it, starts in Acts chapter 20. Now, I hope you're far enough along and you're grasping this stuff to understand the next thing I'm going to say. Fundamentally, technically, your Bible ends the New Testament in Acts chapter 20. Now, I know you've got a lot of things after that, but most people don't know that what follows after that the majority of that is Paul's writings to the church. What they don't know is that when Paul writes to those seven churches also, which match up to the seven in Revelation, he writes that before Acts chapter 20. He writes some of them in prison. He writes a few of the epistles that we have He's in jail. But the majority of the things are written uh, during the book of Acts. So what you see put after Acts looks like if you followed it, you have Acts and then this book was written and Romans and First Corinthians. That's not the way it is. Acts was written and then the books that Paul writes are all lift them out, put them right in the book of Acts, and they're written during that time period. So everything is there. So that shows you that as far as the church is concerned, then we have... We have uh, uh, Acts chapter 20 is really the end. I know you got eight chapters left in Acts, but he goes down and he's in jail and it's not a commentary on him starting church, it's a commentary on his life and, and then he's killed and not the end of Paul. Now, I told you earlier that Hebrews was a transitional book that transitioned you into uh, the church age, and it is. I also told you that God does everything through a transition, and he does. Let me show you something. This is one of the, this was worth, what I'm about to give you is worth coming for this morning. Okay, see if I can remember all this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. He presents himself in four Gospels, four different ways. King of the Jews in Matthew, a servant in Mark, son of man in Luke, the son of God in John. In Matthew chapter 12 and 13, they make their official rejection. They had killed John the Baptist, and now they reject Christ. So we now go through a process of the rest of the Gospels, and Christ then dies on the cross. When he dies on the cross, he resurrects. We see nobody knowing about the church age yet and all these things following in. So then we enter into the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 1 through 7, they get the last and third and final chance to get the kingdom. Once they don't, a transition takes place, a transition from the nation of Israel and the Jew into the church age and the Gentile. I gave you the transition. Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 3 missionary trips brings us up to Acts chapter 20. In the book of Acts, when that church age is beginning to be unfolded and Paul is revealing it, he writes to seven churches. Here are the books and here's what they represent. Acts is the transition. Now, these are the order of the books in your Bible, not as he wrote them. But these are the order the Holy Spirit of God put in your Bible to show you what I'm about to show you. After Acts, when the church age is fully instituted by Acts chapter 20, the next book we needed was a book that told us exactly the handbook of doctrine for the New Testament church. So God put into your Bible the book of Romans. That's your next book. Book of Romans is the greatest book on the planet. The greatest book on the planet showing you the handbook of doctrine. Everything we believe. Everything we believe. Everything we believe is foundationalized in the book of Romans. You'll, re you'll notice that all the other books that Paul writes to, he starts out by saying to the church at Corinth, to the church at Ephesus, to the church. He doesn't say that in Romans. He simply says, to all that be in Rome. <clears throat> He's giving you across the board Christian doctrine to every believer in every church during the church age. Romans is the fundamental book that we get everything that we believe from. It's an incredible book. I taught it a while back, a number of years ago. It's on the internet. The next book, he writes two letters to the church at Corinth. These two books are incredibly invaluable to us. He writes these during the Acts period. In 1 Corinthians, he shows us what happens to a church when they don't follow the doctrine of Romans. So we have the most messed up church in all of the planet. Chapter by chapter, he goes through and he corrects them on everything that they're messed up on. Then we have the second letter he writes to them, which is also during the time of Acts. And that'll be 2 Corinthians. In the book of 2 Corinthians, now Paul is teaching them everything because they have gotten right with God. They want to learn the Bible. So now chapter by chapter in the second book, he shows them every aspect of ministry. These two books form incredible teaching to us. If you want to learn the ministry of the church, study 2 Corinthians. Chapter by chapter, it lays it out. The next book is the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, we're taught that we are uh, we, are, um, we are kept by faith. The book of Galatians and the book of Romans go hand in hand. The book of Romans teaches us that we're justified by faith. The book of Galatians teaches us that we're kept by faith. What has happened here is a group of people have come in with another gospel. So Paul was showing the church in Galatia, which is also written during the book of Acts, how to handle it. 
in the next book, which is Ephesus. Now, keep in mind, that's where he started out. That's the first church in church history. So, in this book written, he completely defines the church. See how that works? The first church in, the last, the church in, in Acts 20 is Ephesus. The first church in Revelation is Ephesus. Start church history. So, when he writes the book to the church in Ephesus, he defines the church in the most spiritual, intimate way that he can. The book of Ephesus, Ephesians, excuse me, is the Song of Solomon of the New Testament. Then he writes the book of Philippians after that. You'll find that Philippians is the purest church in all the churches that he writes to. He has issues with all the other churches. He has no issues with the church at Philippi. And uh, in that book, there are 10 fundamental Bible doctrines that if all you had was the book of Philippians and all you had was these 10, you could survive as a Christian. They are 10 of the most phenomenal verses that you'll ever, ever find and they impact your life and my life as a New Testament Christian. Now, the next book then is Colossians. Colossians <clears throat> is a contrast to the Philippians, where the Philippian church had no issues in the book of Colossians. They're in a mess. This mirrors what you find in the book of Revelation where Philippians deals with the Philadelphia church, the church of the open door, and Laodicea deals with the Colossian church, church of the closed door. Because you'll find in Colossians, Laodicea five times. It's a direct reference to it. And you're going to find that this church has traded the Word of God for tradition, for philosophy, and it's an incredible book. Now those ends the churches that he writes to. I'm sure he wrote many other letters, but these are the ones that the Holy Spirit of God wanted us to have for obvious reasons. And you see the order they're in now. That's very important. And then you have 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, he lays out the five models for the New Testament church. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he writes how to keep from being deceived. Then he gets to three New Testament men. In 1 and 2 Timothy, you'll find how he lays out the model pastor. In Titus, He'll lay out the model stewardship. In Philemon, he'll lay out the model servant. And that ends the book that Paul writes. Now, you've heard me say this, and I, I say it again. Whenever you read anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, always got to be careful. Whenever you read anything after Paul's writings, you got to be careful. But when you're reading Paul's writings to the church, you're 100% safe. Everything in it is straight to you. What you got to do with the rest of the books in the Bible is run it through what Paul teaches. If it lines up to what Paul teaches, it's okay. Some things will. If it does not line up, then you don't put it to the church. Many things won't. But now watch this. Watch this. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Old Testament. Then God translated the, from, in the book of Acts from the Old Testament to the church age. Then Paul gives you the uh, establishment of the first church, Acts chapter 20. Then he gives you Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That ends Paul's writings. The next book is the book of Hebrews, where Acts transitions you from the Old Testament into the church age. Hebrews now transitions you out of the church age, moving toward the tribulation period. So now you'll have all the epistles that fundamentally directly don't go to the church. You'll have first and second Peter. He's the apostle to the Jews. You'll have James, written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. You have Hebrews, nothing to do with Christianity. Then you have first, second, and third John. You got to be careful of those books. Those are dual books. And then you have Jude, completely, completely, the nation of Israel. Then you have the book of Revelation. What is the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is the capstone. The book of Revelation is the capstone of the Bible that brings everything that you have now studied to a focal point. Church history, Old Testament, nation of Israel, getting back to God through the tribulation, second coming, millennium, eternity, right on down the line. That's what you have. So, when you understand that and you realize that, then you see that uh, uh, the church age was something that God was very, very, very uh, clear on as far as what he wanted to accomplish. Now, when you get into Revelation chapter 2 is where we want to go here. Let me give you the breakdown of these seven churches and how they, how they fit into history. The first church is at Ephesus. And that'll in a time frame historically, that will be from Acts chapter 20, which is about uh, 60 A.D. up to the around 200 A.D. approximately. The name Ephesus means fully purposed. The next one will be found in verse 8, and this will be the church of Smyrna. These are all places in Asia Minor. This will pick up around 200 and bring us up to about 325 A.D. And this means bitterness or mirth. That's what the name Smyrna means. The third one will be found up here in verse 12 of chapter 2. That'll be Pergamos. That'll run about 325 with the beginning of the uh, Council of Nicaea up to about 500 A.D. with the start of the Dark Ages. This Pergamos name means much marriage. And this is the time in history where the that the church gets married to the world through Constantine and all that it goes on, and we've talked about many, many times. The next one will be found in verse 18, the fourth one, and that'll be Thyatira. Thyatira means odor of affliction. This will be from about 500 up to the uh, 1000 A.D. 
up into the Dark Ages, the middle of the Dark Ages, uh, and this will be the severe persecution by the Roman Catholic Church of the believers. The fifth one will be found in chapter 3. It's Sardis. Sardis means red ones. And this will be a time period of 1,000 to 1,500. This will be the last half of the Dark Ages. The red ones being connected with, again, the blood and the martyr uh, of takes, uh, what takes place. And uh, uh, along with this, during this time, you had a guy by the name of Savonarola, who was a Roman Catholic monk who got saved and uh, got thrown out and started preaching on the street and winning people to Christ. He got called in by the Vatican hierarchy and was offered a red hat, being a, make him a cardinal. Cardinals wear red hats. If he would shut up, he responded, I would rather have a red hat of blood. And so they martyred him and killed him. Hence, the red ones. All fits, ties together. The sixth one will be over here in chapter 3, verse 7, and this will be Philadelphia. This matches up to Philippians. Philadelphia means brotherly love. This will be about 1600 to 1900, and this will be the church of the open door based on this church getting its hands on a King James 1611 authorized version about 1611, 1620 in there someplace, and then for the next 400 years through England, and then later in America, uh, going around the world, mostly with England. The seventh one will be found in chapter 3, verse 14, and this will be the angel of Laodicea. This will match up to Colossians. Where Philadelphia represented brotherly love, Laodicea, its name means justice of the people or rights of the people. And this church will run from around 1900. Uh, it's officially kicked off with the, with the new translation of the RSV of 1881 coming into Christianity. And it runs up to the present time that we're living in now up into the rapture of the church, and this is called the church of the closed door. Now there you have God dividing up church history, which I'll be the first to tell you is a very complicated thing to study. We will go through church history our last year, and uh, we will go through a condensed version of it, hitting the highlights. You'll have picked up a lot of stuff by then. But we will, we will, uh, we will come through church history at some point, but you will begin to see that one of the most complex issues uh, that you'll ever try to undertake to study will be church history. The problem with church history is much like the Bible. There's so much information out on the Bible that is bad, you have to wade through the bad and not get deceived to get to the good. And what you find in studying your Bible by reading other books you find guys who write the Bible come in three categories. Guys that you can trust 100% in what you read, a guys that you can trust about 50% in what you read, and then guys that you can't trust at all in what you read. You have to be able to understand where it is and get the books and get the material that you can trust. 
as you get older in it, you can read the material of the guys who are the 50 percenters, but you got to know where you got to let them go, where you got to take what you can. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. And then you got to realize who the enemy is. A lot of guys don't like Dr. Ruckman's teachings, don't like his books. And I get it. I do. I've heard the thing many, many times that he spends so much time naming names and fighting everybody and, and just, you know, getting into talking about this guy or this guy or that guy or this guy. And I understand that there's a, there's a level of Christianity that doesn't want that level of information. Uh, for you, I would suggest that you probably get some of Dwight Pentecost books or, or some, you know, J. Vernon McGee's books, something like that. You know, stay out of the big boys' books. Ruckman does one thing, and he does it well, and I've always appreciated it. He may spend a lot of time going through fighting this, running this, and talking about this guy, about this guy, but I'll tell you something. Maybe that doesn't work for you. It's invaluable to me. But when I'm done with his book, you know what? I know exactly who believes what and why. And I need to know that. Now, maybe you don't need that level. Maybe you're never going to go with it that far. For then for you, Harry Ironsides is wonderful. You know, J. Vernon McGee, he's great for you. He'll give you the milk of the Bible. You get a lot of nice little things in there, and you'll feel good about it. And that's good stuff. There's people that need that. But for me, I appreciate when I get done with something, I want to know in my vagina work and my job with the people I got to deal with and people I got to talk to, I want to know what the other guy's thinking. I want to know who's it. I want to know who. I want to know who Dr. Custer is. I want to know what he believes. I want to know who Westcott and Hort are. I want to know everything about them I can. I want to know uh, who uh, John R. Rice is. I want to know who A.B. Henderson is. I want to know who these guys are coming up in my world, what they believed, who are writing books out there. I want to know who these guys are and what they believe because in my line of work, dealing with the people that I deal with, helping them the way I do, I'm going to find people that read their material that, uh, that have gotten messed up on it. And I'm going to have to, as I preached last week, know my enemy. And for me to answer a fool according to his folly or not according to his folly, I've got to know what's flying around out there. So I've always appreciated it. Take a little more time? Yeah, sure. But that's okay. I'm not into video games anyhow. It's okay. Take more time? Sure. I don't have any apps on my phone to play games anyhow. Take a lot of time? Yeah, I do. I don't watch that much television to begin with. You know what? It depends on what you want to get out of life. And when I'm dealing with somebody, I'm not very good at it, but I want to be the best I can be at it. And there's a lot that I don't know, and I don't profess to know everything. Would never try to say that. But what I do know, I do know. And uh, I've learned that it, those kind of things were invaluable to me. I want to know uh, what a man is teaching and what he's saying. I want to know if the pulpit commentary is any good. I want to know if all these books and all these things out here uh, and all these Greek and Hebrew scholars are worth listening to. I want to know what they believe. I want to know that when you throw them in my face, I can gut their intestines out and hang them up on a rack and send it on the top of your car home with you. That's what I want. And that's, that comes from getting into it. Now, I get it. I understand. Most God's people don't want the Bible on that level. I don't know what to tell you. I'm, I'm just weird. I just am. When I found that book and got into that book, it lit a fire in me that ain't never been put out.
and I just want to know everything about it. And I want to know everything everybody else knows about it. I want to know who's right and I want to know who's wrong. I want to know who's got the truth and who doesn't. Because I have to rub shoulders with them. I want to be able to sit down and listen to a guy preach or sit down and read a guy's book and know 15 minutes into the sermon or 10 chapters into the book what I'm dealing with. So I don't get caught in the blood moon stuff. See? So I don't think the end of the world is coming tomorrow. Personally, I wish it would have. I mean, it was good timing. It was on the first, uh, the second coming of Christ date, September 23rd. I'm good with it. It just ain't going to happen that way. So it's important that you understand the New Testament church because that's the church that we live in. That's the one that impacts us the most. And that's why we have to always look at it from the aspect and understand it. And so you have now, you have now, uh, what you need to put it all together for the church age. This is, a, this is the, probably for us the most important component because it's the one we live in. And it spans such a period of time. And it's such a, such a detailed thing. And, you know, you, when it comes to church history, you've got to do the same thing you've got to do when it comes to the Bible. You've got to find out who you can trust in reading and who you can't. And uh, there's not a lot of good books on, on church history. Uh, I have found that books on church history come in two formats. Uh, they come into a biblical uh, study of church history and a non-biblical study of church history. I will say this. I have two books that were used in Bible colleges for church history. Uh, one of them is by Carnes, and the other one is by, I don't know who it is, but... Um, once I learned the Bible aspect of church history, those two, and this shows you how it works, those two books were invaluable to me because they filled in the logistical gaps of the timeline of church history. They told me who Edward I was. They told me who Bloody Mary was. They gave me insight on each of their reigns. See, you can't get that wrong. What they didn't have was anything connected to the Bible. They, they all wrote church history like they thought the devil died. That's okay. Once I got the truth in church history, I needed those books to fill in the gaps of the timeline of what was going on in Europe and England and France and Germany. I needed that. And they gave me that. And that was good. I mean, you can't mess that up because it's just history. But they put it into a fashion in the concept of church history that was very helpful to me. But I understood I wasn't going to get anything from them that had anything to do with what I've given you today. The standard for church history is the seven followers by Philip Schaff. That was the standard issue in every Bible college. And if you talk to a pastor who claims to have an understanding of church history, he will, he will run you back to Philip Schaff's seven volumes that is the standard for Christianity. And uh, if somebody asked me one time was the greatest thing I ever learned about the seven volumes of Philip Schaff, and that is that a 223 will go through eight of the books and stop in seven of the books, six of the books and stop in the seventh. As a bullet stop, that's the best thing I've ever found out for it. There ain't nothing in it that's good about it in the Bible. They all take the position that the Roman church and everybody connected with it are Christian. They all take the position that during church history, the devil didn't exist. It's all a non-biblical church history. 
And uh, I, I've got my volumes, never use them. I'll refer to them sometimes just to see what somebody says that's wrong, to give it a contrast. Nothing, nothing. The two greatest volumes on church history I have ever read in my life were the two by Dr. Ruckman. Now, I've got to tell you this about it. Personally, please don't take this the wrong way. I think my material on church history, the last I did it, is probably the best you'll ever find anywhere. But it's only because I got it from Ruckman. Ruckman writes in such a technological way that he thinks that you already understand a lot when he writes it. And if you don't do that, then you can get lost in it. <clears throat> what I did is what I can do best. Digested all that stuff and then put it back out in an understandable format that anybody could get it. Breaking it down. And that's why I'm saying that, <clears throat> if you allow me to say it, that uh, if you want to get church history, probably the last section I did here um, that's being put in a book form, I think volume one's out now, is probably the, the best, easiest. And I would suggest you go through that, then go through Dr. Ruckman's, put the pieces together, and then tackle everything else that's out there. Between the two of us, you'll get a good handle on it. So. So that's the first coming of Christ. We'll hold up there.